This is Daniel Fagell, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. And this is a Tuesday episode, so we're focusing on AI use cases. Our use case is the translation of enterprise content into different languages. When you think about this problem initially, it doesn't feel like a big billion-dollar business here. But if you put yourself in the shoes of someone working at John Deere or General Electric or Microsoft who needs to translate thousands of web pages and thousands of product pages and thousands of marketing material pieces of different kinds, digital, print, whatever, into a dozen or more languages, the problem starts to look substantial. A lot of money is being spent on this domain. It's very high touch. There's a lot of opportunity for human error to get the messaging wrong, to translate something maybe from English into German and have it really convey the wrong points with the wrong kind of tone for that native market. And there's a lot of nuance that goes into translation. Where does AI fit in? Well, that's what we ask. Spence Green is our guest this week. Is the CEO of Lilt. Lilt has raised nearly $40 million over the course of their five years being in business uh, to solve this problem for some of the world's biggest brands. They work with some very large and exciting companies. And Spence talks to us this week about the actual use case of AI for translation. What is the role of man? What is the role of machine? How do the two work together? And how does a company like Lilt work with an enterprise? This is a really interesting AI use case, different from very many use cases we've covered here on our Tuesday episodes. It does not involve deep integration to a lot of data streams of the company. It just involves access to materials in whatever the native language is, and then the ability to have man and machine work together to produce at scale materials in different languages. So Spence talks about what that use case and workflow looks like, and it's an interesting peek under the hood at what enterprise natural language processing looks like in an enterprise application. If you're interested in our full library of AI use cases, speaking of NLP, be sure to check out Emerge Plus. We have an AI use case explorer that allows you to select by industry and also select by AI approach. So you can just for search for NLP applications in pharma or just look for computer vision applications and financial services, for example, and find a plethora of companies and use cases in operation today. And on top of that, you'll also get access to all of our white papers and our best practice guides for adopting AI and AI ROI. So if you're interested in more about use cases, check out emerj.com slash P1. That's P is in the word plus one. So Emerge Plus can be found at emerj.com slash P and then the number one. Check that out if you're interested in use cases. Otherwise, without further ado, we're going to fly into this episode with Spence of Lilt here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Spence, I know we're going to be talking about AI for translation, and clearly that's a, a workflow that you folks are impacting. I want to get an understanding of what it looks like now. You get a big brand like an Intel or you know some, some large company that's got to localize all their web content. How do they do that with people? Sure. So Dan, let me, let me first tell you a story so you can understand sure. what the motivation for doing this translation is. So most people today are familiar with Google Translate and use it when you browse the web and you click translate in Chrome or you use it on your phone. Yep. And you yep. see this in a lot of consumer devices. And that's really useful for these consumer use cases where you want to translate a sign you see on the road or you see a restaurant menu or you just want to get a gist of a web page of a language that you don't speak. Okay, so that, and that is widely used. Google Translate has had enormous impact and everybody's familiar with that. The second case, I think, more broadly is in business. And so our motivation for building this company was uh, an experience I had about 15 years ago where I was living overseas in a country, a non-English speaking country, uh, where, but where language was spoken as a lingua franca. And I had a friend who didn't speak English, but spoke the native language of this country. And he told me that 
he was paid less and could not get a job because he didn't speak English. And this occurred to me as a, a sort of inequality that we don't talk about very much. Obviously, can't you can learn a language, but you can't control your native language. You're just born yep. somewhere. Yep. So if you don't speak English, it's a barrier to opportunity 100%, in the world that we live in 100%. right now. Right? Okay, so taking that as the premise, now take that to business. Businesses want to sell their products and services, and they want to make those available to people in different languages so that they can do their job, so that they can do research for products, so that they can learn. And presently, the way that that is done is by hiring people to type translation. There are some assistants used, but for the most part, it's just hiring human translators to translate much the same way that translation has been done since, I don't know, before agriculture yeah, or something. Yeah. So what we wanted to do, and, and no machine translation was used. So this was about 2010 when we were learning about this problem. So what we, our initial idea was to... Uh, and my co-founder and I met working on Google Translate to take that technology and augment what translators do. The translation problem is not a solved problem. So we can't fully remove yep. the human translator, but we can certainly amplify what they, what they do. And if we can do that, then we can make it much more affordable and efficient for companies to make all of their information available to anybody who wants it. And so for comparison, right now, companies pay about... $80 for an eight and a half by 11, one and a half spaced page of 12 point type. So it's very, very expensive. Oh, that's, that's intense. And that's intense. Yeah. Yeah. And so we want to use technology to drive that price down so that for a fixed budget, companies can localize more of their information. That's good for them. They can grow their business and it's good for the world because more people have access to the products and services that you and I take for granted. Yeah. So, um, and I, I guess there's like the equality element here that you're sort of bringing in from the side, but clearly it's just like if Intel wants people in Japan to read their stuff, there's that benefit too, right? We, we're an English company primarily, but we can, yeah. we can move our product. Yeah, that's right. There's, there's 400 mil, there's about 400 million native speakers of English. Yeah. There's about another 700 million L2 speakers. And then there are couple hundred million that speak it as a foreign language. So you're talking maybe one and a half, two billion people in the world that speak English. That leaves what, five and a half billion the people? Majority the majority of humanity, yeah. majority of humanity, right? Yeah. So it's it's not just for positive social impact. We're capitalists, and this is an opportunity for businesses to, to grow their set of customers. At 80 bucks a page, I mean, you know, that's a business opportunity, right? The folks that we've yeah. seen working on translation have all kind of picked their lane, that your, your lane seems to be sort of digital assets. So maybe we'll walk through what that looks like now. So let's say a big company, who knows, a, a General Electric, you know, they're, they've got a new jet engine, and they're going to sell it around the world as they do. Yeah. Normally, they're going to create their what it's web pages, it's sales collateral. You'll probably know the list, and then and then yeah. they would hire their team of people that they hopefully have a relationship with, who are going to do a really nice fine comb job at eighty bucks a page of uh, mm -hmm. for for all those different assets. Is that more or less what it looks like now? Yeah, that's exactly right. So typically, a business will decide we're going to do business in these markets, and that's a business decision. And then the choice is which of their of their English experience, because it's usually companies translating out of English, yeah, yeah. they're going to make available in that market. And uh, so, for example, one of our customers is Intel. Everybody knows Intel's products. And Intel sells, they, they localize into about 16 languages right now. And so that's everything. That's intel.com, product manuals, technical specs, marketing materials, everything having to do with Intel's product and services. And... Uh, it turns out that despite the fact that translation is so expensive, it's typically less expensive than authoring new content from scratch in yeah. every language that yeah. you work in. 
The second sort of operational constraint is companies generally want a consistent brand across their products and yeah, services. Yeah. And if you're authoring things in different locales, you've got a lot more people involved and it's very, very difficult to control the brand. So it's much easier to author in one language, control the brand messaging there, and then localize into a bunch of different languages. So that's that's kind of the, the business motivation for enterprise localization. Got it. Yep. Because at that price, I mean, it makes sense. 16 languages. That's uh, What feels uh, challenging to me, uh, Spence, is that you know, a home page, an about page, a product page, uh, I get it. I can see that being translated. Technical manuals or product manuals, you know, if we're talking about hardware, it seems like that's a whole nother level of granularity. I imagine the amount of human required for content type A, content type B might vary depending on maybe, let's say, your experience or the human's experience in that particular bounded space. How much of it is similar to, let's say, if it's an apparel brand, well, Jeepers, there's a bajillion apparel brands versus if it's some kind of, I'm sure you don't work in the equestrian market. I'm just pulling something random out. <laughs> if you're selling horseshoes, it's just going to be a different set of words. It's maybe tough. Is I imagine there's a little bit of a, an accordion there about how much man and machine is involved. Is that the case? Yeah, the intuition is right. So there are two things that you need to do enterprise translation effectively and to do it with augmentation from machine learning. So the first is the intuition that you need domain expertise is correct. Uh, the translator who's appropriate for Intel usually has an engineering or some kind of technical background versus we do the translation for ASICs for their e-commerce website, cool. their, okay. their shoes. Yep, okay? yep. So so that is, you don't need an engineering background to yeah. translate things about shoes, but you do need to understand the terminology related to shoes. I probably don't even know all the different components yeah, yeah, of a shoe yeah, in English, yeah. right? You, you, maybe we don't know all the different pieces, but yeah. we should... We should know what they are if we're going to translate them into other languages. And the second thing that you need is you need a system that is able to adapt to that domain. So if you use a general purpose machine learning system, it is not going to be tuned to the word sense that you might use in these different domains. And so that's really the, the rationale originally behind our research was to build machine learning systems that learn as they're used. So they do continuous domain adaptation. And then you get this kind of virtuous cycle where you have the translator who's has an engineering background for translating very technical stuff. And as a byproduct of their work, they're specializing the system to that domain. Yeah. Yeah. The, the goal would be to, I guess, feed that back in to say, Hey, you know, we've had all of our human auditors or what have you check this, product page versus the English product page. This is totally kosher. You know, this is the way this stuff should map moving forward and, and potentially be able to create a bit of a virtuous cycle. Again, for you, I think that would probably bend you in the direction of, if you can, working with similar clients. Not that it would prevent you to working with a new one. It's just, it's going to sort of naturally want to groove you towards, let's say, more and more shoe companies or apparel companies or more and more maybe hardware firms. Is that is that the case? And do you guys have sort of general lanes that you've kind of plucked out now, now that that's happened? Yeah, you know, that's that's an interesting point of view. And I think it's generally right. Translation, you can think of it as bilingual writing. So the workflow and the process of it across companies does not differ very much. What does differ is, of course, the domain of the information that's being translated. And in addition, the companies and the organizations that to do this, they, they think about the act of translation very differently. So that's more of the sales and marketing challenge, whereas I have a technical background. So I come to this and I just see uh, a layer of abstraction and a commonality across organizations. And that's beautiful and appealing to me. But from the, <laughs> from the customer side, they think they're, you know, oh, Intel is just so much different. Yeah, than what yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas actually you can use the same stack. You, you need to use different people, but uh, it's the same. There's less customization than you might imagine 
that's needed to serve very different content types, assuming you have a system that can learn. Yeah. And assuming that, I guess I'm thinking two things. Number one, you have those human experts. Number two, you have at least a tertiary grasp of the jargon world that you're operating in. You know, the, the, the system probably should know maybe some of the component parts or whatever the case may be. So there might be a bit of that. But yeah, the, the stack itself, as you'd mentioned, is going to be is going to be the same. So maybe we can talk now about the after picture. So I'm, I'm seeing sort of how you folks are approaching this. Obviously, it's a business problem that, you know, deserves attention. Um, it's an opportunity. The before was we, we kind of schlep it out to the folks who can do the actual writing. They put it back on the page. Okay, we have it. It's very expensive, but it's there. The, the new process, do folks field these inquiries sort of through your platform and, and the folks that translate on the back end, or do they have their own translators that now work within this interface? I know there's folks like Gango that do kind of the crowdsourced ball game of their own, their own network. Maybe other people use existing staff with their tech. Now, how do you guys square the circle there? Right. Well, I, I think there may be two parts of your question, which is where does this lead to? Like, what's the sort of transformation of the workflow? And yeah. then is this a sort of a, a crowdsourcing task? We can talk about that too. So the key idea is that companies do not just pay for a correct translation. They pay for, for any given sentence, there may be many, many, many correct translations. Yep. So if I just say in English, hi, Dan, there may be 10 translations that could be, hey, Daniel, what's up, Dan? Yeah. How you doing, Dan? Like you can translate that a bunch of different ways. For sure. They're all valid translations. What they're paying for is the preferred translation, the one that's consistent with whatever requirements they have for their brand. And they're paying for a quality guarantee. Okay. So as far as the service model goes, I think what you have right now, what we have built is just a replacement for the traditional agency model they have. They have some agency and it's just backed by people. We replace that agency with a technology enabled service. Got it, okay. The sort of crowdsourcing model, I think that goes back and Gengo is one of the companies that you mentioned that goes back about 10 years ago. And the idea there was like something like Uber for translators or something. You know, about 10 years ago in startups, there was like Uber for everything, right? And uh, I think the, the sort of reason that that has never taken off is... One, because companies don't buy translation in that way. They don't buy it in sort of a self-service model, you know, sort of buy and pay on demand. And the second reason is that idea of a preferred translation. What you kind of want is there, there is product knowledge and institutional knowledge that people build up over time when they're working and sort of distributing sentences out to crowds. You don't take that. It, and so you sort of, it's it's more of a, a higher touch, almost staff augmentation model where you have the same translators learning the brand and those are the ones that you want to augment. Yeah, yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And again, if you go to the the Appens and the Gangos, and I mean, these people have all bought, you know, advertisements with us, so we're familiar with their marketing and their value props, sure. uh, the Lion Bridge or what have you, right? You have Rev.com. I mean, a yeah. lot of these folks are now aiming to swivel into sort of Data labeling. Uh, yeah, data, exactly, because it's just the same distributed. Now, for them, they I think they're they're pretty, you know, especially firms like Clickworker, who, who's worked with us as well, you know, they've they've got the low-level tasks. You know, it, where's the dog in the picture? Okay, we, we yeah. don't really need specialized. But I think, you, you know, even for them, maybe they have the, the folks that are really, really sharp, like medical knowledge in Spanish, 
who are going to be the designated. But for you folks, it's it's a pure focus on translation in terms of the people skill. And it's a technology stack that hopefully gives them less work to do when it lands on their plate in the first place. So you're just really dialing down. I think, again, many of these folks focus on or can purport specialization. You guys are a whole platform about one kind of specialization. I think that's what that's we're here. Okay. You're a good sales guy, Dan. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying. Yeah, I'm, try, I'm working with you. Well, you know, we, I, we have to think a lot about selling and adopting these things because um, the, yeah. a lot of the barrier is, you know, well, why would I use AI, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of like we have to come up with a strong argument. I would argue that that's argument. more than 50% of the challenge. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot there. So, okay. Well, I'm glad uh, if this ever doesn't work out, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about sales positions. Um, talk about sales jobs. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. So, okay. So, to close the, the loop on this, we've got a great picture of the before and the business problem. I had no idea about that price, by the way, Spence. That's new news to me. So that's pretty interesting to know. The importance of the preferred translation, the, the brand voice being genuine, true, resonant in those. Essentially, they they send out, is, is the way the workflow works, they send out, here's all the pages, you know, here's the PDF manual or the Word doc manual. Here's the Word doc version of the homepage. Here's the Word doc version of the, does it literally go out in chunky files of that kind? You guys collect them, and then you put together the, the analogous files in a different language, and then they go put them up on their various websites however they want. Is it literally like that? And is Word the medium here, or is there another way that happens? Well, they're, they're sort of, okay, so now we're getting into localization sort of operations, and there are two problems that you have to solve. The first we call internationalization. So that is using systems that can display text in different languages, and further that support displaying strings in different languages, okay? So for, if you're writing a piece of software, it's bad to just hard code string literals into your views, right? Because then you can't pull the strings out to have them localized. So a first step for many companies is to centralize where the strings are so that you can pull them out and do something with them. So that's the internationalization problem. And they're increasingly modern systems, content management systems, source code repositories, knowledge bases, things like that, they have localization specific functionality. So you can pull strings out, put strings back in and show different language versions. So that's the first problem to solve. It's sort of an internal uh, content infrastructure issue you have to solve. Once you have that, then we simply connect to these repositories with automated integrations, pull the content out on some cycle. It gets routed through a workflow with our, you know, it gets assigned to translators and it gets processed and then it gets put back automatically. So I really think about our company, you can think of like as a word factory where source words come in, target words go out, and you want to have as few human touches as possible in that round trip cycle. That, that's a, yeah, as, as the guy running the company, I think that's a cool way for you to be framing it, you know, for, for you to continually say, are we getting closer and closer to what we want? That's a nice way to frame it as well. It's, it sounds like different people have different kind of content management systems. So you're not always pulling from the same, they're not always sending ugly word docs. Sometimes there's, you know, system A, system B, you know, these, these yeah. internationalization problem has software apparently built for that to some degree. And you guys sure. pull from that and then you give them back the file formats that they want. Right. So they may be running their website in Adobe Experience Manager, their source code is stored in GitHub, and their knowledge base is in Zendesk. And we connect to each one of these systems and process the text. And the files that come out of these systems are very different as well, because internally they have some representation, be it HTML or usually for source code, it's like JSON or something like that. So there's a, there's a kind of tricky but invisible step of manipulating the text that comes out of these systems and extracting the linguistic content because you're not going to extract uh, usually, you know, tables and charts and all that sort of stuff 
get the strings out that are meant to be localized, present those to a translator so they can do the localization, then put the files back together and send them back. Got it. Okay, cool. So that's, again, I li- what I like to do, Spence, is paint this mental picture of the before and after for the listener so they can be like, oh, that's mm-hmm. where it fits into the workflow. And something I've learned that I'm interested in your take, we'll close on this note, but I think you've, you know, you guys have grown beyond where your average AI firm uh, gets you. You've got clients, you've learned probably a ton of hard lessons around how this process works. What we find, yeah. and one of the reasons we, we tend to interview companies that have raised much more money and have, have name brand clients is because when you talk to companies that are more mature, you actually find... Uh, AI processes that find a way to extract as much workflow as possible out of the client's plate. So, and, and, and when, when you talk to companies that are younger, they actually presume that they're going to be overhauling how an enterprise works, which I think we, we, all, we all hope we're going to get there at we some point, right? Eventually, enterprises yeah. are going to, you know, they'll have just more, like, they'll just be harmonized data ecosystems where we can just do so many cool things. But I think firms that are growing at least today are doing a lot of what you're saying, where it's like, hey, they've got a workflow. Well, we just plug our pipes into it. And, and now mm-hmm. you don't, nobody on their side, in your case, many, many firms can't avoid this, but in your case, for the most part, it sounds like they can avoid anything around feature engineering and all that wacky stuff. Maybe they'll provide a little bit of word feedback to help you train your actual writers or your system, but you've, you've made it so you just plug into the same pipes, basically. Yeah, I mean, a key, a key element is which systems they've, they've chosen. If they've chosen their systems well that have localization support, then we can plug into that. We have one customer who... It's a public company now, but at some point, it's a technical company. And the early days of their journey, their engineers decided, oh, we can write a CMS and, uh, oh, we can write a knowledge base. So they wrote these internal systems that they were running their website and their knowledge base on, and they just didn't build any localization support into it. So, you know, we have been working with them over time as they have migrated out of these homebrew systems to systems like Zendesk that have fine localization support and we can connect to. And the tricky thing for our customers who are usually localization people is they they are charged with servicing systems that they don't actually control. So they are kind of have on their critical path some other team that owns the knowledge base that they're trying to serve. And they have to sort of, they have this internal consultative and evangelistic role to help their internal stakeholders choose systems that make it easier and more efficient and cost-effective to localize from. Yep. What it's like to sell to the enterprise. Uh, so yeah, right. that, that, that's not even AI specific in that case. But yeah, you guys have found your workarounds. I think it's a really cool, it's cool to see sort of, again, the before and after and how you folks have made it click. So I know that's all we have for this episode. Spencer, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Dan. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this show, be sure to drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. We've got a couple more since about a week and a half ago, and I think I mentioned this last. And it always means a lot when we get a five-star review from our listeners. You can find us very easily on Apple Podcasts by searching for AI and Business. And be sure to leave a comment. Let me know and let my team know what it is that you liked most, what kinds of episodes you're excited to hear more about in the future. It really is your ideas that have shaped the podcast. We've actually grown our audience in this coronavirus era. Uh, Even with less people commuting, people are still tuning in when they're walking their dog, and we have more people interested in AI than ever. So your opinion matters in shaping what we're going to create for our growing audience. 
and uh, we want to make a better show for you and for the other folks to tune in. It also means a lot to us because it helps to get the word out about the show. So if you want to support the show and help us improve and make it better for you, drop us a five-star review on iTunes. Pretty easy to find the AI and Business Podcast there. You can also find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, and those other channels if you're not already subscribed. Otherwise, that's it for this episode. I look forward to catching you for our Thursday episode here on the AI and Business Podcast. 